I think every single person, if we did something like the child tax credit, as a child will benefit from their family having more money, even if they eventually become a single person. I just don't sympathize as much with the single person argument because it is way more expensive to actually take care of a human being. So here's my thing on that though. And we've got our producer, Lucy, back there who's about to bring a child into the world. And here's my thing. You know, Lucy just bought a, a nice car, a Grand Cherokee. <laughs> uh, and and here's, here's the thing. That this is where, this is where we talk about. Hold a on, Grand Cherokee. Hold on, hold on, hold on. When we're talking about thresholds like $400,000, like I don't want to subsidize her like upgrading to a Denali. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? A lot of interesting things to talk about today. Leaked documents from the botched Afghanistan pullout don't paint the Biden administration in a good light. We discuss the implications. Then, the debate about the permanent child tax credit continues in Washington. We look into the pros and cons of that policy. New meta-analysis from a group of economists suggests the most divisive COVID-19 measures, lockdowns, were not effective at preventing significant death. We dive into that research, but first things first, a lot of fires going off in the NFL right now. Brian Flores, the former Miami Dolphins head coach and his attorneys filed a lawsuit today in a court in Manhattan that alleges racism in hiring from the New York Giants, the Miami Dolphins, the Denver Broncos, and the National Football League. Former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores has accused his former team and the entire NFL of a culture of racial discrimination. Allegations of sham interviews and payoffs to lose games are among the most explosive claims Flores makes in his class action lawsuit. Now, racism in the NFL has been an open secret for a while now. Right now, just one of the NFL's 32 teams has a black head coach, while 70% of the league is black. Flores is just 40 years old so he's putting his entire career on the line to call this out ravi i know me and you we read this entire lawsuit uh this entire complaint what can we make of all of this yeah we were reading through this yesterday as it came down it reads almost like a history of the nfl and it goes beyond anything that's happened recently and goes all the way to the founding of the nfl and catalogs a history of racism and discrimination that seems undisputed in many ways mm -hmm. like there are certain things in this document that are absolutely allegations that have yet to be proven. And mm -hmm. then there are things that are just historical fact. And I think one thing that's fascinating is a lot of people who are just casual sports fans can describe what happened in baseball, like the Negro League and how there were all these amazing players who were deprived of chance. But they don't really know that history of the NFL. And I think this lawsuit's going to help people understand that history. And it, the NFL, if I were the NFL, I'd be very concerned. And, and Flores in this lawsuit, he starts out just coming in hot right away. This is from the right at the beginning of this complaint document. He says, in certain critical ways, the NFL is racially segregated and is managed much like a plantation. Its 32 owners, none of whom are black, profit substantially from the labor of NFL players, 70% of whom are black. The owners watch the games from atop in NFL stadiums in their luxury boxes while their majority black workforce put their bodies on the line every Sunday taking vicious hits and suffering debilitating injuries 
to their bodies and their brains while the NFL and their owners reap billions of dollars. So he's going at them full frontal. And I think what makes this interesting is that Flores is undisputably a great coach. As somebody who's a Buffalo Bills fan, we're in the same division. When he was fired, I tweeted before this lawsuit, how, and I, and I don't really tweet about the Miami Dolphins very often or ever, but I tweeted that this was a crazy firing because he's a really good coach. I mean, it's great for the Bills that we don't have him in division anymore, but it was baffling then. And now he makes a lot of allegations about what exactly was going on behind the scenes. And if I were the NFL, I'd be concerned. And one thing that I'm confused about that I'm wondering if either of you guys have any insight into um, is that the situation in terms of minority hiring seems to be getting worse in recent years. Just going back to like 2007 to 2011, 26.9% of uh, head coach hires were of minorities. And now that's gone down significantly. Do we have any sort of sense of why that might be happening? Well, a lot of that just deals with the racial discrimination that he alleges in this lawsuit. He talks about the fact that a lot of black head coaches are not given the same opportunities as far as leeway. Like if they have a bad season, they often get fired a lot more, a lot easier than someone who had who's white who had a bad season. Uh, there was an example of uh, I believe it was um, Jim Caldwell. Jim, Jim Caldwell, yeah, with the Colts, uh, he went to the Super Bowl and then two seasons later had a pretty bad season and was just fired. And so there's a lot of examples like that. There's other examples of the Texans. Uh, head coach uh, was just let go after a pretty bad season. Uh, and I think he was only there for one season, wasn't he? Yeah. 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 And I think, I, I don't know the answer as to why it's getting worse. I think there's a lot of attention on this rule called the Rooney rule, mm -hmm. which this was a rule that was instituted in 2003. And it seems to be a born of good intentions. Like Johnny Cochran was involved and there was this, you know, there was there was a lot of attention on the fact that at the time there had only been six black head coaches uh, by 2003. And they instituted this rule that started with a requirement that every time there's a head coaching vacancy, you have to interview at least one black person for that position. And now it's expanded. Now you have to interview two people of color. They have to be external candidates. There's a whole process that the league has set up where they, they actually help organize the process and it's now trickled down to assistant positions, GM positions, front office positions. And as you point out, we are not in a good place. Even after all of that, you have one black head coach currently in the NFL, at least as of this taping. There could be somebody announced in the next few mm -hmm. hours. And they, in this lawsuit, uh, call out the Rooney rule. So they're basically saying this very, you know, maybe a well-intentioned rule actually is playing out in ways that are discriminatory right now and, and harmful. They say that the Rooney rule is uh, not working because management is not doing the interviews in good faith and therefore it creates a stigma that interviews of black candidates are only being done to comply with the Rooney rule rather than in recognition of their talents. So, uh, and they give examples saying, you know, there are lots of situations that he's alleging and other people are coming forward to share their examples of where there's a vacancy they're called in to do these interviews mm -hmm. and the decisions have already been made, but they're only doing it because it's the rule. So mm -hmm. they're wasting these time, their time. And I think what, what's getting Flores incensed is that he's being called into one interview after another yeah. where he's not even being considered for the position, but they're doing it just to comply with this rule. So it's kind of this classic good intentions gone wrong situation. And there's one colorful example where John Elway, you know, the Hall of Fame quarterback who's now the GM or now president, I think, of the Broncos, showed up late to this interview, seemed like he was hungover, clearly didn't give a shit. And I think he's, I think, Flores had a lot of these, you know, experiences, and then he just lost his shit. <laughs> well, let's like talk about maybe the reason why he lost his shit, and that's the Bill Belichick text. I mean, what do you make of this? From what it looks like, Bill Belichick texted 
Flores saying, kind of almost congratulating him for getting this, for potentially getting the head coaching position that was open to the New York Giants. And then uh, Flores had not yet gone to his second interview yeah. with the Giants. Mm-hmm. And then it seems like Belichick texted the wrong Brian. Yeah, this is like a who's on first situation. So uh, if you don't know football, bear with me here. Bill Belichick, great, one of the greatest, if not the best head coach of all time, which means that he has a coaching tree, they call it, meaning like a lot of these candidates come from him because he's trained them, you know, think of him almost as like a Steve Jobs or something, uh, you know, where there's a lot of his protégés go on to start new companies. He happened to have two protégés named Brian, one Brian Dayball, who's the, was the former offensive coordinator of the Buffalo Bills. And then he had Brian Flores, uh, who we've been talking about here. Brian Dayball gets the Giants job, but it's still not public yet. Brian Flores is still interviewing for the Giants job. Bill Belichick uh, texts, and it seems uh, he texted Brian Flores thinking it was Brian Dayball saying congratulations on the job. And Flores is like, wait, what? And then Bill Bill Belichick had to basically apologize. And that's the beginning of the complaint is that text message. And I think, and the reason why they share it, I think this is not obvious to people trying to think about this from a legal perspective. The reason why they share that text is because it they're offering this as proof that the decision was made before Flores wrapped up the interview process. And that is that is significant from a legal perspective because the weird intersection of this Rooney rule means that race is explicitly a factor in who gets to interview, right? Like because they have to interview uh people of color for these positions. Uh but uh, if you're, if it's, if you have to interview a person for uh, of color for a position, but you've already made up your mind about who that person is before they come in, that means that you're basically offering up people of color as like a sacrifice to the gods of equity and diversity or whatever. Uh, which means that you're bringing people in explicitly to not give them a job because of their race. Yeah, that's and it's a it's a tricky, complicated legal argument. But here, just as from a legal perspective, as somebody who's been a part of a couple of big lawsuits like this, nothing that will play out in the dollar figures of this, but I've been a part of uh, at least one multi-million dollar lawsuit, the discovery is what the NFL is going to be afraid of here. It's not going to be the ultimate outcome. I think this is going to be a six fig- a, a massive multi-million dollar, hundreds of million dollars, if not billions of dollars settlement. But the reason why the NFL is going to be really concerned here is because now everybody mentioned in this document is going to be subject to depositions. And there are some things in here that are super inconvenient for the NFL. Uh, one, one thing, you know, beyond the race questions, which there are just some damning, damning allegations in here, uh, in here. And I know Corey, you did a TikTok about that this morning. Uh, one piece outside of the race context, but it does have a racial component, is that the the owner of the Dolphins, who's Stephen Ross, who also owns related companies, anybody who's a member of Equinox, that's the company who owns Equinox. Uh, Stephen Ross allegedly asked Flores to tank games, like lose games on purpose, and was trying to give Flores a bonus to do that. And the reason why is because in the NFL, the, the team with the lowest record gets the top draft pick the next year, and Flores refused. And so if that's true, that's like goes to the integrity of the game. So uh, the NFL is not going to want that to come out. And so I think this is where the NFL is right now. I think that they're in really big trouble here. They, they're not going to want to go to discovery. They're going to do everything possible to settle this case. And the question is, what does Flores want? Like what from a dollar figure, what, what's, what suffices? Who else joins this class action lawsuit? And then he lists a couple of remedies to the, the hiring process. Uh, as well, which I think the NFL will probably quickly grant just because I think for them, 
the dollars and cents are a bigger concern. I mean, it's sad to say this, but I thought the NFL would be more concerned about the fixing games than all of the racial discrimination because that ruins, like you said, the entire integrity of the league. Now, some people are going to look at this story and they're going to say, well, you should hire the best person for the job. You sh- it shouldn't have anything to do with skin color. So what do you say to someone who comes with that attitude and, does, and doesn't see the relevancy here of the sham interviews and everything like that and just thinks that Flores is blowing this out of proportion? So I want to I want to live in a world where people's immutable characteristics don't matter in a job interview. The problem is I don't get to create a world where everybody's on an equal playing field right away. So when you have a situation where only one of 32 NFL coaches are black, that's not an accidental situation. If you're flipping a coin 32 times in a row and it comes up tails 31 out of 32 times, that means that something more than chance is going on here and that there's not an equal playing field. And so from my perspective, as we talked about in the Supreme Court situation, I don't like litmus tests. Um, I don't think it's it's great for our country that we have them. But at the same time, the absence of taking race into account when race has been taken into account for hundreds of years means that in a way you you are acceding to the history, right? Like in this situation where, you know, the owners are like, is there a black owner? No. I don't think there is a black owner, no. right? That, is that an accident, right? So like when you when you have a situation that's so stacked against a group of people and, um, and, and you have to remedy it somehow, right? And like, is the remedy just to do nothing and hope that it all plays out and, and becomes equal one day? Or do you do things to actually put your finger on the scale to fix those things? I think that's what make, makes this tricky is because attempts to fix it, like the Rooney rule can sometimes backfire. Uh, sometimes if you pick somebody because of their race, then they, you know, they feel like they're not legitimate because you know, you've announced that ahead of time. We talked about the Supreme Court, but then if you don't pick them at all, then they don't have an opportunity at all. So you're kind of in this catch 22. And this is where I get to people. This is where I get upset with certain people who called this out. Like Matt Walsh tweeted the following. He said, this is pretty great. The NFL put an affirmative action policy in place requiring teams to interview black coaching candidates just to check the box. The Giants followed the rule and now a black coach is suing them, claiming that the policy is somehow racist against him. Amazing. Now, I agree that this Rooney rule backfired, but what I would want to know to Matt Walsh citizen is what are you going to do? Like when we live in a world where we showed the Supreme Court stats the other day, you could talk about any aspect of American life, whether it's wealth, who are the CEOs, who are in the halls of power, who are the head coaching candidates, who are the GMs, who are the owners. It is overwhelmingly tilted in favor of one race in this country, a a country that happens to have a deep history with slavery. Like, is this an accident? No. So what are you going to do, Matt Wall Citizen? We can agree that the Rooney Rule backfired, but what are you going to do to help fix this problem is my question. You know, when I hear stuff like the Matt Walsh tweet, it's just it's just infuriating because no one like Brian Flores, I don't want to speak for all African-Americans, we're not a monolith, but no one like Brian Flores is going to put his career on the line like that unless he really felt like enough was enough. Yeah, he had a future. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely still had a future. I mean, there are still some open positions right now that, that he could be considered for, but he probably won't be because of because of his lawsuit. And like when you're in that position, when you're an African-American and you're in a professional position, you never want to think, oh, I'm not getting promoted because of my race. You never want to think that. But when you have the qualifications and you see someone else getting promoted who doesn't quite have the qualifications or your qualifications are equal, you have to think to yourself, what else could it be? And I think that's the position that Flores is in here. Yeah, I would just want to know, like, if we just stopped all race-based uh, discrimination, hiring practices, everything, like, we don't we don't have affirmative action, so we don't have the remedies, but we also don't have this discrimination, how long does it take 
for races to become on equal footing? And I think that is a question that divides people ideologically. I actually think there's a good faith discussion amongst people as to like how that would play out. The problem is like you need a lot of things to happen before that we live in that world. There's two interesting things to note. Um, one that Flores's lawyers, I don't think they've named who, but have said that on both the charges of having sham interviews and on being paid to um, lose games, that there are other coaches that have said that they've had the same experiences. And another interesting thing is that like the NBA doesn't have this degree of disparity in their coaching and stuff. So there maybe there's something specifically happening within the NFL and and there's a model of another league where that's not the same situation. But I've definitely been on the sidelines on this conversation well, a little bit because I don't know. The NFL is like the theory about the NFL NFL is that, and this is Bill Simmons, I've heard, I'm not sure if he's the original proponent of this theory, but he says that, you know, NBA is more new money, like kind of people who are younger and they're kind of more tech innovators and stuff like that. So they're people who think a little bit differently than a lot of the old money that's in the NFL. That's at least a theory about what what makes the two leagues differently. And then the second is that the the NBA is way more empowering to players because when you have five players on the court at a time and they're not wearing helmets they're way more recognizable symbols each player matters more so the lebron james or you know god help us the kyrie irvings of the world have more power and control over their destiny and the league's destiny and so like when something happens they can like you know what happened during the floyd protests they can grind a game to the to a halt with with a little bit of coordination between players who, who know each other, coordinate with each other, and that's largely a good thing. And so they demand certain things. And and LeBron James is an example. Like, I think he was instrumental in Ty Lue becoming his coach, for example. And you see this time and time again is that they have way more decision making power over who becomes their coach, and you don't see that much as much in the NFL. Well, hopefully some things in the NFL will change. Uh, We're going to move on to our next story here. New revelations about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan paint the Biden administration as woefully unprepared. Axios shared leaked White House documents this week that suggest even basic details of the operation were still being decided just hours before the Taliban seized the Afghan capital. Fast forward to now and the humanitarian crisis everyone warned about is coming true. The U.N. now says more than half of the population there, somewhere on the order of 20 million people face extreme hunger. Millions are fleeing, sounding alarms about a migrant crisis. So any way you look at this, even if you agree with the withdrawal, this hasn't gone well at all. What do we make of the the fallout here from this Afghanistan debacle that's still still happening months later? I mean, this war is singular. You know, you think about the fact that, you know, I was a freshman in college when 9-11 happened and my brother went off and fought in Afghanistan. And uh, I have a bunch of friends who went out and fought there. And then I lived long enough to then go on and start a school where my kids were old enough to graduate and fight in Afghanistan. And that's crazy. And so this war has been going on a long time. I was a fly on the wall uh, back in 2009 and 10, working in the Obama administration when there was a big surge debate and all of that. And Man, it felt like we were rounding the bend back then, but obviously this continues to go on. And I think that the sins are so numerous, it's unbelievable. So you start the clock back in the 80s when we're arming the Mujahideen against Russia. We basically did nothing to contain the consequences of that after we and Russia left uh, and they they assassinated their leader, the Taliban came to power. And then we then jump in full force after 9-11. And then 
immediately, basically within a year, go to war in Iraq. And that becomes our central focus. And we take our eye off the ball in Afghanistan. Uh, and then once we realize we're screwing things up in Afghanistan, we then apply a nation building, the clear hole build strategy from Iraq to Afghanistan without really a full accounting of the differences of the two countries. You know, one country being for all of the flaws to, to say lightly under Saddam Hussein, it was still a bureaucratic state with way higher literacy rates and had a, a history of, of infrastructure and government functioning in its own crazy Saddam way. Afghanistan was never that. It had none of that uh, infrastructure. It had super high illiteracy rates and was basically a collection of different warlords controlling different parts of the country with a huge Pakistani influence on its border. And so we screwed that part up. Then Biden comes in uh, announcing 9-11 as the date, which is like, sure, like that, that's like a random date, right? Like uh, he picks it for symbolic reasons, not strategic and tactical reasons, and then doesn't put in the time, resources, attention to make that work. And then I think accedes to the demands of President Ghani, who basically didn't want the U.S. to start evacuating people early because they didn't want to create a sense of chaos. We over, uh, we were overconfident in the Afghan government and the Afghan army. And then Biden completely screws up the the evacuations, and then gives a speech in August basically saying the buck doesn't stop here, like was not very clear about what he would have done differently, the mistakes he made, et cetera. And this is where we find ourselves is like one mistake after another. And Biden is the commander in chief, the buck stops with him. And he was the most recent fuck up in a long series of fuck ups that our country's had in Afghanistan. Yeah. And I think the humanitarian side of this is hugely important because now half of people in the country are experiencing extreme levels of hunger. Hundreds of thousands are fleeing. We left translators and aides and Americans there, women and girls, all their rights essentially are being rolled back slowly. It's really tragic. And I hope, especially as a libertarian, that this is kind of the nail in the coffin of this idea that we can go, go and get ourselves involved in some very complex situation and fix it and somehow like evangelize our model of of democracy or life somewhere else. And um, this reminds me of a friend of mine, Faisal, who started this uh, organization called Ideas Beyond Borders. He's from Iraq. He grew up reading classical liberal texts and very like the American Constitution and John Stuart Mill. And now he's sending books to Afghanistan to actually teach people these values because you can't just go have a military presence in a country and then pull out and expect that somehow our, our values are going to uphold afterwards. And so I think that that issue of education and assuming that um, the American model can be extrapolated all around the world is just completely broken. And we have a really grotesque history of covert action and getting involved in all these different conflicts that we really have no business being in. And I hope that this really changes the national mores around doing something like this again in the future. Absolutely. You made some great points there. Um, about educating another country about democracy before you just try to force it onto them. But something you said, uh, Ravi, about the fact that we were overconfident in the ability of the Afghanistan government to hold back the Taliban. And not everybody was. Uh, there was a general, Frank McKenzie, who became the head of the U.S. Central Command, highly critical of the way both of these administrations were handling the Afghanistan situation. He was critical of this uh, Doha agreement that uh, Trump did with the Taliban, did not think that was a really good plan, and was also very critical of Biden's assessment that the Afghanistan uh, government would be able to hold mm. for as long as it was, or for as long as they thought it would be. So there were people in the U.S. military in very high levels that were critical of both of the actions of these presidents. And it seems like this was an instance in which the 
political civilian leaders of our government weren't listening to the people on the ground as much as they should have been. And that may have resulted in why this was such a horrible blunder for the Biden administration. Yeah, this is a textbook case for me as to why I like my government to take on a limited amount of things and do them really well. Mm. Because if you look at what the Biden administration was doing at the, in, in their initial days, it's like you've got COVID going on, they're yeah. passing all these bills on the Hill, they're trying to expand this, expand that, make this yeah. promise, make that promise. And in the end, you can't do all these things. And I think this is, this is where I differ from a lot of alternative media where like there's a lot of you know some of our friends in alternative media which they, there's not an issue they don't find a conspiracy in it's like you know Ukraine is a military industrial complex and this and that like having served in government it's more like the Keystone Cops a lot of times it's not like there's these this group this cabal sometimes there is like but it's not always this villain, you know, petting their cat in some, you know, dark castle somewhere. Like, it's often just a group of people who are overwhelmed, not coordinating well, not on the same page, and making huge mistakes and then not owning up to them, which is what I see here. And and it's really sad to me. Like, this is this is a group of people who depended upon us. And as, no matter what we think about the origins of that war or going all the way back to the 80s, Absolutely. like these are human beings who are suffering. And and I, I there's got to be more we could do even today. Yeah, I listened to an interview of a um, soldier who was deployed to Afghanistan who broke down in tears talking about when he was talking to these translators on the ground when they were involved in the war he was saying like like we're here for you like you're we're gonna pay you back for your help and to think now that those people are left and now entirely endangered in enemy territory for having helped our country is just so tragic uh i think we can agree this is quite frankly the biggest mistake of the Biden administration so far so political implications here. I mean, not not as many people are talking about this as much. I know this Axios article is what brought it up for us to talk about, but is this something that going forward, midterms 2024, is this something that Biden will have to answer for when it comes to the politics of all of this? Yeah, I think if you look at his polling over the summer, this was one very critical piece of a large slide that he took over the summer. Obviously, COVID was part of it. There are a lot of things that were part of it. And, you know, he deserves criticism for this. Like, I, I've definitely laid out the blame to a lot of people. But during the Trump administration, I, I was very critical of the administration for not, you know, owning uh, the results of their own policy and constantly passing the buck and doing whataboutisms or whatever. And I think Democrats and liberals need to do that with Biden. He is the person in charge. And he had the ability, even after he made those mistakes, to get up and give a very different speech on August 31st over Absolutely. the summer. And he did not. And I remember that there was this viral video that went around by Jocko Willink, um, you know, the, the the veteran who's now like a public intellectual who's written a lot of interesting books. And he basically gave this alternative Biden speech where he was basically saying, like, this is what it would sound like to take responsibility. Now, I don't agree with everything that Jocko said, because I think in there he was like, in the next 48 hours, hours, America will be in control of most major airports in Afghanistan. Any resistance we meet from the Taliban or otherwise, when we seize these airports will be destroyed completely and without mercy. I'm going to hunt down everybody who does yada yada. And I'm like, you can't really follow through on that now. Like there's not an appetite to send more American troops down there to, to keep fighting that war. But I did like the first part, which is essentially I fucked this up. And I like leaders who are just do what Bill Belichick did in his text message. Be like, yeah, I fucked up. Like, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, Biden, yeah, should have sent a text message to uh, like uh, the president, uh, Ghani. Or Karzai, something. he could or send Karzai, it to the wrong yeah. president. Yeah. He probably sent like, it to the hey, wrong president. Sorry, Karzai. Then, yeah. I mean, like, hey, I'm not the president it. anymore. Uh, impeachment, do we think 
Biden could get no. impeached over this? You don't think so? I mean, so? The, if the the people will try impeach no matter what, but you remember the threshold for impeachment is so high. Uh, is it though? Well, to impeach, to remove, sorry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. well, when it comes so, to removal, yeah. But I mean, if the Republicans took the House and the Senate, would that be on the table? I think yeah. it would be. I don't know if this would be it. It would maybe be some like Hunter Biden laptop conspiracy or something. Possibly. But who knows? I mean, Now on to the continued debate about the child tax credit. Democrats say the credit, which expired in December of 2021, reduced child poverty by 30%. But Republicans are pushing back, saying the program amounts to a new welfare program. The price tag on the tax credit law is hefty, around $185 billion a year. And those numbers don't sit well with the fact that the U.S. has just surpassed $30 trillion in our national debt for the first time ever. So let's dive into this. Is the child tax credit something worth saving? Uh, Ravi, I know you have some strong opinions about uh, the child tax credit, and I, me and my son would like to hear those opinions. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, just for people like me who don't have children, this is a tax benefit that's granted to Americans uh, for each qualifying dependent ch child, right? And uh, what's interesting is that it's fluctuated in terms of who qualifies over the past few years. There's been a lot of debate about this. It started in 1997, actually, as a Republican idea, and has now, um, and that, that was, for those people who weren't around back then, there was this big debate about welfare and work requirements for welfare, and you had Republicans who favored you know, tax incentives because it's people who are working, and, and, that, and they wanted to incentivize people working and reward people who are working. Putting that debate aside, uh, this tax credit has fluctuated in terms of how much money you can make and still qualify for it. For me, and this is at the center of the debate between Manchin and Bennett. Manchin wants to make this low, I think, seventy five thousand qualifying for a family, and Bennett wants to for make the whole it household seventy five thousand for the whole I household. I think right, yeah, seventy five for the whole household for families. So the so this is where I come down on this, is that number one, I think our tax code in general is too complicated. I think that it's right now like every one policy sounds sensible, but then when you build it all on top of each other, it's like one of those houses that um, if you've ever been somewhere where like you build a little piece at a time, nothing matches each other and nothing makes sense, nothing works. Uh, I would also say that uh, it is a weird system where you have people, you have a world where potentially a fifty thousand, a teacher making fifty thousand uh, dollars, is subsidizing a family making three hundred ninety nine thousand dollars for anything, in my opinion. And so, uh, whether they have kids or not, that just seems like a, a bad public policy result. And so, to me, I want children in poverty to be taken care of. I think there are many different ways you could do that. I think that the way that this has been designed has just leads to some really weird results. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that historically this has been a Republican kind of policy and a Democratic policy. And I I don't personally have any problem with it. I don't really like taxes in the first place as a libertarian. And so in any way that I can put money back into people's pockets to actually spend as they please rather than through government programs that end up you only getting getting cents on the dollar by the time the money actually reaches the person through different handout systems. Um, I mean, I'm I'm for the child tax credit. I don't know about this specific iteration, but I also just more largely feel that our tax system is so convoluted and bureaucratic and ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's millions of words long. There's literally 1.7 billion hours spent by Americans every single year trying to figure out what the heck they owe. 
Um, $31 billion spent just to figure it out, to pay other people to do it. This is from 2019. Um, and if you take in the cost of compliance plus the work hours that are lost in the economy, a George Mason University study estimated $600 billion loss, which is insane. Um, and there's also a study that's worth mentioning that's kind of funny. Um, Money, Money Magazine sent a fictional family's tax information to 46 different tax experts that were considered really like high-end accountants, and they got back 46 different estimates with thousands of dollars difference between. And so I'm I'm going to say I'm a flat taxer, a flat mm -hmm. rate on this, on this personally, um, because I think that our system is just so broken and convoluted and we just add more and more provisions and layers and it's just more and more confusing. So, so you're saying people are actually losing hours of their life, hours that they could be working by just doing their oh, taxes. Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's so ridiculous and so confusing. And especially if you live in a place that adds even more layers on the local level, it's insane. We, we spend 1.7 billion hours as a country trying to figure out what the heck we owe. That's insane. And that's unpaid. We're paying yeah. this money to to the government and we're doing a job for them. It's stealing our time. So taxation really is theft. Taxation <laughs> is theft. I will stand well, by that one. Corey, also, <laughs> like, you know, to answer your question about my message for your child, uh, let's focus on what you said about the, the deficit. Okay, 30 well, trillion pay attention dollars. to you. Listen. <laughs> the, the $30 trillion deficit, and I was looking at this because the 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 Federal Reserve is talking about raising interest rates, right? Which means that um, the amount that the U.S. Uh, actually has to pay out and our debt will go up. There are estimates from the Congressional Budget Office that net costs will reach 8.6% of gross domestic product of just our debt and our interest rate on our debt um, to the point where we'll have $60 trillion in interest rate payments over the next three decades. So essentially, I just don't want him to pay for our decisions today. You know, I want him to have that money in his pocket. Um, but more important than that, like we're, we're borrowing from future generations here. Now, now this isn't where I would start this debate. Like I actually, if I'm rank ordering good policy versus bad, I would probably go after things like mortgage interest rate deductions on yachts, which is currently a policy. Uh, and so there's so many bad tax deductions. And I think this is my problem with the tax code and where I'm with Ricky is like the more wealthy you are, and I, I think especially once you start to hit the hundreds of thousands of dollars, like 500,000 plus, you start doing all these tricks so that you're not paying as much taxes as you should. We've all seen the numbers. But I also think, and this is where I'm going to be really unpopular, and to be clear, I want to have kids. I want to get married. But I do want to look out for my single people out there who don't <laughs> want to have kids. They get absolutely screwed in the tax code. So here's just a couple of <laughs> examples of where single, unmarried people who don't have kids and don't plan to get them just get absolutely screwed. So uh, first of all, they don't get any tax breaks. Couples uh, get to jointly file and they get deductibles. Um, Social Security goes back into the system after you die if you're a single person, whereas it goes to your spouse uh, if you're married. Uh, if you're married, you can claim your spouse's Social Security at 65 and then wait for yours to accrue. Uh, married couples uh, can put two people on an IRA, uh, whereas if one spouse does not work for five years, the other spouse can make contributions into that account. But if you're a single person and you don't work for a few years, I can't have my family. They, they're not allowed to contribute. Uh, into my 401k or my my IRA. Um, spouses can withdraw from an IRA for medical and educational purposes and not face a 10% penalty, but single people face a 10% fee. And that's before we even get to kids, right? We're talking about the, the child tax credit, uh, the fact that, you know, single people pay into the public school system, which they should. But like, Thank you, single people, for doing that. We don't They don't get that enough. And then you have parental leave policies in companies. You put this all together and say, wow, like 
being a single person is freaking hard. Like, well, and all I have to hear is how hard it is to raise children in this country. Uh, and so, you know, I just want a little bit more respect for my single people out there. I think every single person, if we did something like the child tax credit, as a child will benefit from their family having more money, even if they eventually become a single person. Which, well, yeah, in order to be a person, I think you have to have I don't, been a kid, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm uh, not feeling as bad for you as you are, but you know. Let me give you some things, <laughs> uh, Robbie. Okay, so first of all, on average, if your child does not latch on, mine's didn't, $180 per month for formula. And that's in Alabama. It's about $243 a month in New York. Do you know York. what my Equinox membership is? Uh, <laughs> uh, $243 a month for formula in New York. $70 to $80 a month for diapers. Um, $25 to $300 a month for toys, pacifiers, and other child-related shit. It is very expensive <laughs> to take care of just a little person, like a toddler, like a little child. Then when they grow up, they have golf lessons and tennis lessons and baseball lessons and t-ball lessons you have to pay for all of that stuff yep. then they become teenagers and then they get a driver's license then you have to pay for their car like it is extremely yeah, expensive I hear you. and it lasts for 18 years but then with my generation it lasts for 30 years because we don't move out of our parents houses until we're at least 31 or 32 so i'm right. sorry i just don't sympathize as much with the single person argument because it is way more expensive to actually take care of a human being so here's my thing on that though uh, and we've got our producer, Lucy, back there who's about to bring a child into the world. And and here's my thing. You know, Lucy just bought a, a nice car, a Grand Cherokee. <laughs> uh, and and here's here's the thing. That this child is where, this deserves is we a on. Grand Hold Cherokee. On. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, when we're talking about thresholds like $400,000... Like, I don't want to subsidize her, like, upgrading to a Denali. You know what I'm saying? Like, like yes, I want you to have the money for all those things. But I think when people start getting up to three, dollars $400,000, well, no, of course. Like, that's be absurd to me. There should yeah. definitely be a cap. I, I mean, I don't know if 70000 should be that cap, but there should definitely be a cap. But I think, you know, when you look at what other countries do, other more developed countries in Europe and how much they spend on child care, it's insane. I mean, the, 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 the facts really speak for themselves. Yeah, there's that Spain situation um, from our research that I found really fascinating is that you had from 2007 to 2010, Spain introduced and then eliminated cash transfers to new mothers. So this wasn't a tax credit. And the data is really interesting. We have a, a, an underpopulation crisis potentially in this country, mm -hmm. many people will say. And the, the data at least suggests that this cash transfer system actually incentivized new births. It actually decreased abortions in the country. And then when they canceled it, births went down. Uh, and so it is definitely one, if I'm being serious and kind of take off my Skip Bayless, defend a position hat here for a second and say, all right, this could be, if, if, we, if we did better in taking care of parents in this country, especially on the lower end of the income scale, that could help us uh, with this sort of demographic time bomb that we have. Yeah. I Social would want to marry it with smart immigration policy because I think that, you know, births are, isn't the only way out of this. Mm -hmm. uh, Agreed. But yeah, like I, if I'm being serious, um, which I still am single people, I'm still your advocate, but I do think that this is a tool in toolbox. Norway spends $29,000 a year on toddlers. Iceland, $24,000 a year. Chile spends $8,000 a year. Chile, yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. I'm not going to say Chile. Um, um, I think it's Chile. Uh, $8,000 a year. Lithuania, $8,000 a year. We spend $500 a year on toddlers in the United States. Yeah, but have you, have you looked at how much we pay per pupil here in New York for education of a child? Mm. That's New York. 
It's like six zillion dollars per child here. I would much rather see a system where we give tax credits and allow the parents to spend that money however they want and however they see fit for their family rather than the government doling it out and with programs that sometimes aren't effective, which I know we're about to talk about one of those very programs with pre-K. Yes, let's get into that. Um, New research finds that pre-K programs could be detrimental to children. The study published found that children who attended state-sponsored pre-K were 74 four percent more likely to be diagnosed with a learning disorder by sixth grade compared to their peers who did not attend pre-k that's that's pretty scary Uh, let's talk a little bit about these findings what is wrong with the pre-k system here in america well this is um coming out of tennessee's system it's a vanderbilt study and they held the study back for two years just to double check it because the findings were so crazy but the kids that literally did not go to pre-k at all did so much better. It's almost double learning disorder rates and also school rule violations. It was 18.5% for the control group versus 27.3% for the group that was actually kept in pre-K. But initially when they went into kindergarten, they were doing better, the kids that had gone to pre-K. And then this flipped as they got older, their their development was just off and not as, as favorable as the kids that were literally at home, which is just really incredible. And this is the first study of this kind where we have a control group that didn't do anything at all. And it's pretty astonishing. So they were, when they went to pre-K and they went to kindergarten, they were doing better in kindergarten. At first they were doing better. But then as they got older, they started developing these issues. Yeah. So, I, I mean, my take on this is that what happened was they were being taught like early kindergarten stuff. And so when you get to the first fundamental things, like you're going to have a little bit of a head start, but they lacked the experience of just being at home, being a kid, going out and exploring. And I think in a lot of these pre-K settings, they're just sitting around quiet, being yelled at, not really allowed to get their energy out and just enjoy or bond with a parent or play with siblings outside. And so I think this is not a good look for this governmental pre-K situation. Yeah, and I think the fact that this is Tennessee is notable because it's obviously where I ran schools. And gee, I didn't know that. Right? I'll give you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, like, let me paint you a picture of what this looks like. I think this is a question of people act like pre-K is some solution to the larger system that stands outside of it, but it's going to be a reflection of the same problems that the system already had. Yeah. And so, just to give you a sense, uh, we have a, a, a guy named Elias Lukes who works for us, and he was the first student I ever attended, the first school I ever started. And when I went to go visit the middle school, and I was just scouting locations to start our first school, when I went to go visit the middle school that Elias would have gone to, I was with my buddy John Little, who's now on the school board for Nashville, we went to go uh, visit that middle school, and it was like an episode of Cobra Kai. There were like fights breaking out all over the school. Wow. No adult supervision anywhere you could find it. I go up to the second floor uh, to visit the teacher who had arranged the visit, and she's got a bunch of kids watching cartoons in the middle of the day, in the middle of a school year. And this is middle school. And wow. so uh, if that's what middle school looks like, there's why why should pre-K be any different for kids? Like, And obviously, quality is variable. And generally speaking, as we talked about here, like having kids in a school building, I want that over kids not being in a school building, which is why even with this data, I still want to keep trying to make pre-K better. I wouldn't want to get rid of it. But but my critique is of, of people who just want more and more and more without saying, how do we make the stuff that we have better? What are the difficult choices we need to make to make kindergarten better, first grade better, second grade? And I think what's interesting here is 
if this were just test scores, they would have argued away. I know the people, <laughs> they would just be like, all right, this is an imperfect measure. But because this includes so many other things, um, including special education services, you know, and which is notable because you'd expect that if kids start earlier, you'd expect to have fewer kids on IEPs, individualized education um, um, because they would be able to get ahead of certain deficits. And the fact that di that didn't happen in this case is notable. And this is, th there, there's been data like this going back a long time. So uh, there was a government study on Head Start in 1965 that found that the program produced no discernible advantage in elementary school performance. Wow. And I don't want to use this data to say, let's not provide programs for kids, because I mm -hmm. think that's a really bad response to this problem. But I do want to challenge people who are responsible for the system to say, if you want to expand, we need to... You need to show us what's different about this than what is already happening. Yeah, I know Biden is really pushing it hard for the uh, Build Back Better bill to have this universal pre-K. I know it's a huge thing the Democrats are pushing. But like you said, if K through 12 is broken, why introducing people to that at an earlier age? How would that fix the problem? And something Ricky said really points out to me about the idea of taking a child that young and putting them in a controlled environment like that, telling them to sit down and shut up. I, I have a toddler right now and they don't like to sit down and they don't like to <laughs> shut up and you really can't make them, honestly. And yeah. so I do, I can definitely see some developmental issues coming from uh, instilling that on a child too young. Uh, I could definitely see the backlash there. Yeah, and, and this is where I'm with Ricky on loosening up a little bit in certain cases like like what if we just piloted vouchers more for pre-k and in some places this is true and in, and it could be even true that and I, I don't know enough about how tennessee implemented this mm -hmm. but this is where i would want to to do what we do and i know that like this is the this is the ravi bingo card i've talked about being a school principal is talk about charter schools because that's what everything's about everything comes back to that everybody mark your cards uh, in the uh, studio please but one of the reasons why i like the process for creating charters is that you have people who have to make a case to a city in our case it was 5 years every 5 years we would get a, a charter to 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 produce education for kids. I would love to open up this process to make it more competitive. And there's probably elements of this already in place in this pre-K program to say, all right, innovators come out there, we're gonna pay you really well. Like come up with new theories about how to get kids um, a good experience in pre-K and make it really worth their while. Um, and I think that could help. Yeah, and I think this is really a perfectly timed study to come out because we need to know this before we make some sort of sweeping policy that we have universal pre-k and it's really important that we look at this data and we say okay well our public school systems have all these issues that have kind of piled up over time with unions and this and that and all the bureaucratic layers that you have to go through to accomplish anything and this is a new program that we're setting up and we need to make sure that we don't make those same mistakes and i think this is a moment for opportunity absolutely did we did, did we all go to pre-k here yeah mm -hmm. went to pre-k yeah. too yeah, and I didn't do well after it either. So. I remember they were like <laughs> making us do these menial little things like punching holes with thumbtacks into this piece of paper and I'd get like poked in the finger every two seconds. Like it was just doing stupid stuff and I would have been better kind of tottering around outside and yeah. like doing See, something I different. See, I, I had a it's great awful. experience. Yeah, <laughs> I, I went to a Montessori I'm, one. I'm still friends with, with people from uh, pre-K. I used uh, to get hit with rulers wow. in pre-K. I didn't. I didn't care <laughs> what? for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you did a little tap on the hand. South man. Yes, yeah, Alabama. <laughs> now on to our final story. One of our favorite topics to talk about here: COVID lockdowns. A study co-authored by an economist at John Hopkins University found that COVID nineteen lockdowns may not have been as effective at reducing the COVID nineteen mortality rate as we once thought. According to the report, during the first COVID nineteen wave in the spring of twenty twenty, lockdowns only reduced COVID. COVID mortality by 0.2% in the United States.
States and Europe. Now, the study they conducted is considered a meta-analysis, which means they assessed a whole bunch of previous studies in order to develop a single conclusion about whether or not lockdowns were effective. And based on those 24 studies, they boiled their research down to the authors concluded that stay at home orders were by and large ill founded policy. Um, now, Ricky, I think it's fair to say that people, you know, being cooped up in their homes uh, like that in 2020 was, you know, nobody liked that. Nobody enjoyed doing that. Uh, was it all worth it? Um, I mean, my stance on that is definitely not. I think in the beginning with the two weeks to stop the spread, I was all for that. And I don't change my stance on that because we had so much we didn't know. But um, this this meta-analysis is based on 24 major studies that found that there was a 0.2% reduction in death. And obviously, we couldn't know that when we first put these policies in place. But we found out a lot more as, as time went on, like transmission isn't happening outdoors. And then, you know, we still have bans on beaches. I was out in LA and they were chasing surfers off the beach at 5 a.m. going out alone and giving them $1,000 citations when that was probably the healthiest thing that a person could have done, both physically, mentally, in terms of not spreading a disease to anyone else because they're outside. And there were so many ridiculous lockdown restrictions. I don't think this means that all of our restrictions in the first place were ill-founded, but ultimately I think that we do need to look back and remember that, you know, suicide attempts for teen girls are up 50%, that 200,000 businesses closed across the U.S. in the first year of the pandemic. There's learning losses, there's domestic abuse, there's a ton of unforeseen consequences. And, you know, I think this is a pretty bad um, result of all those other sacrifices that we we took when ultimately potentially it didn't really save that many lives in the end. It's really unfortunate. So I think there's this phenomenon um, in these, when these studies come out where people have this motivated reasoning where you're like, all right, what was my previous position on uh, the pandemic? And let me just find evidence that confirms that and dismiss evidence that doesn't. And so I'm trying really hard not to do this with the study. And for people who aren't longtime listeners or viewers, you know, we found data previously, um, some from The Economist, some from Politico, that seemed to strongly suggest that places like Florida and Sweden weren't the catastrophes that many of us had predicted. And so there was other data outside of the study, I think, that suggests that what the study is saying um, may be valid. But I think like, when I look at this, there is there are some questions I have about this particular study. Um, you know, the fact that it's not John Hopkins Medical School and Public Health, because I think when people think of John Hopkins, they think of, all right, this is the premier public health institution. And and I don't think this is coming from it's not. that. Yeah, that's true. Um, the second is it hasn't been peer reviewed yet. But the third, and Ricky, I wanted to ask you about this is, I've seen some commentary about the fact that it, it was a meta study that started with 18,000 plus mm -hmm. studies and then got down to 34 and then from 34 to 24. I've seen some people say, hey, uh, they didn't explain how to go from 34 to 24. What's your sense in reading this study? Yeah, so this is something that I dug into a lot because that figure of 34 to 24 has been tossed around a lot in the media and it goes back to this fact checker who um, essentially said that there was no reasoning behind it. And so I wanted to dig into that because I think that's a pretty egregious mistake if that's the case. And this is coming from three well-respected, although potentially partisan in a sense, economists. And so I dug into the study and there's 
five pages to explain how they went from 18,000 down to 34 and there's a flow chart and there's all these different steps and you can follow that exactly. And then if you actually dig further into the study itself, there's five more pages about how that 34 became 24 based on what they call quality dimensions. And, you know, I'm not a scientist. I can't review whether these quality dimensions are great, but they're in there. There's an explanation. And I think that it'd be great to see other people who are experts in the field dig in and make sure that this is not somehow motivated. But there's no evidence as far as I can see that it is as somebody who's a layman. And I think it's also important to point out that these fact checking websites end up kind of just getting the air of like, that's always fact. And I looked up the person who had written it, who has a studio arts degree. Like we're, we're all trying to understand this data and come at it. And then, you know, as soon as someone says, oh, I'm the, the purveyor of facts, well, then everyone's debunking this study based on this one issue. And I, I'm not going to come down and say, oh, this study is definitely true or definitely false, or there's no motivated reasoning, but there's certainly is an expressed motivation for um, going from 34 to 24. And I think that's important to point out. And so if we're just keeping score at home, like the claim that they didn't provide any reasoning from 34 to 24 is not true. Whether we don't know, like whether those are the right reasons or not. No idea. (laughs) Um, I think part of what has motivated people to try to take down the study beyond previous positions is the the author of Mm -hmm. this. And I think, you know, I I confess that when I see somebody who, you know, calls lockdowns fascist and has tweeted about Trump uh, um, in seemingly favorable terms. I there's a part of me that's like, all right, I, I'm not trusting this person to put out the study. Um, what? How do you how do you come down on that? Well, I think that there they are three respected economists. They definitely he definitely has a position. Um, I don't think that the tweet in question about him um, being pro-Trump is necessarily pro-Trump because he was just saying that we developed the vaccine faster than Fauci had originally predicted because Trump had pulled back so many regulations and allowed it to go through with Operation Warp Speed, which I think is credit where credit's due. I'm not a big Trump fan, but that's something that he certainly did achieve. And I also think that... Yeah, there's definitely the potential that somebody's biases get wrapped up in something like this, but it is a very expansive meta-analysis. These are 24 big studies that looked into how effective these lockdowns were, and I'd love to see other experts in the field that can make sure that someone's biases didn't trickle in here. Um, I don't think that it's right to take a stance one way or another until we have other experts that are uh, digging into the data more fully. But I think no matter what happens, these lockdown measures have had really adverse consequences and we should learn from our mistakes. It's, maybe it's not even about placing blame in retrospect because we were overly cautious or wanted to protect people and we ended up doing the wrong thing. But certainly going forward, our public health policy should be informed by meta-analyses like these that can tell us what what these lockdowns did or did not accomplish. Yeah, and I think if I'm being honest, like if somebody were pro lockdown and then had a study like this that showed the opposite, I'm not sure how many people would be like, that's a biased person, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think, you know, the fact that let's pretend that this is a Trump person, mm-hmm. that's like half of the American public pretty much or half, you know, close to half of voters. Uh, I don't know if that should be disqualifying as much as it, it certain gives me certain feelings about it. Yeah. Like, you know, if somebody voted Biden and somebody voted Trump or is pro or anti-lockdown. Well, everyone has biases. Yeah, everybody but has his a perspective. are definitely public, that's yeah. for sure. But um, in the end, he didn't collect the data of the individual studies. And as long as these were 
um, chosen in a valid and unbiased way. I don't know that there's any evidence yet to cast doubt on this. And there aren't any big meta analyses that are saying something entirely different. Right. So yeah. I think that we need to wait to see more people process this new data and and learn from our mistakes if this is actually true and only 0.2% of deaths were reduced by lockdowns. That's really sad considering everything else that happened as a result. Absolutely. Well, great conversation. We want to thank you all for watching and or listening. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to our podcast, make sure to rate, review and subscribe. We'll see you guys next time.